All right, we're in Matthew chapter 1. And I didn't do a terrible job pronouncing a lot of those names. Some of them I completely made up, like I told you, but not a terrible job. It's my guess that Matthew chapter, the the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1 might be some of the most skipped verses in all of our Bible. I mean, what? Second or third, like reading the book of Leviticus or the book of Numbers, which everybody kind of just breezes through and either pretends it's not there or skims through. At least as we look at the New Testament, I wonder if these aren't some of the most skipped verses because so many of us struggle with the idea. We don't want to read a long list of names that we can't pronounce or we don't know what to do with. I think that most of us are uninterested In this long genealogy of Jesus, this genealogy that paints for us a picture of his family tree, but for us it's hard to understand. It's hard to grasp why this matters. What makes this important? And I suspect that many of us would be much more comfortable reading the book of Matthew if Matthew had just left out the first 17 verses and start with what someone should have told him was a much better lead-in to his story anyway, which is verse 18. Look at verse 18. It says this. It says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. Like starting that way, I think, paints the picture of a story that more people are maybe interested in reading. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. Well, let's go. Let's read this. But when it starts with this long list of cumbersome names, it becomes much more difficult. But something that Matthew grasped that I think that we often overlook is that Matthew couldn't start in verse 18 because the story doesn't begin in verse 18. This Christmas story that we're celebrating, that we're moving towards, the celebration of a Savior born, is about more than just a baby. The story started long before a baby was born. And these first 17 stories tell us the beginning of this long story that Jesus was continuing when Jesus came to live among us. To grasp this, let's look back at the story of David that we've been talking about. We've talked about David for months. We've spent a lot of time in his story kind of weaving in and out of different sections. And maybe you remember that in 2 Samuel chapter 7... David asked God if he could do something. David wanted to build a temple. He wanted to build this beautiful house, this beautiful palace for the Lord. So he asked God if he could build a temple. But the story tells us that through the prophet Nathan, God said, no. No, you can't build a temple. But God made a promise to David. Pull up that passage now for me, Jerry. In chapter 7... Verse 12 of the book of 2 Samuel says this, For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. God made a promise to David that eventually one of his descendants would rule a strong kingdom, that a strong kingdom was coming, and it would be in the line of David, that this would be taken care of. So hold on to that. You got it? 
And we want to look elsewhere in the life of David because this ongoing story, this thread continues in David's story and beyond. But maybe you remember that last week we talked about David. And last week as we were talking about David, we talked about the life that David was living and that David returned to the Lord for worship. Even after the incredible sin that he'd done. David had sinned against God. David's sin brought suffering on the people of Israel. And this suffering eventually broke David. David couldn't handle it any longer. So the story says that David cried out to God and he begged that God would give mercy to the people of Israel. You remember that? You got it? Everybody still there? You're still here, yeah? All right, just checking. So what happens? Gad, the angel of the Lord... Shows up, tells David to go to a specific place, build an altar, and burn a sacrifice. Right? So David did what he'd asked. David went to this specific place and David built an altar, this altar that represented the physical presence of God in that place. And he built it exactly where he had been told to build it, which was on the threshing floor of a man named Aruna, who was a Jebusite. And while all of this is important, and we talked about it last week, and it makes sense in the story, if we pay attention, we come to recognize that this is just one small detail in the reality of this incredibly large story that's being painted. Because a few years later, the son of David, King Solomon, would go up that same hill. And in that same spot where his father had built an altar, the beginning that represented the presence of God in that place, Solomon would build the great temple that his father had asked to build. And he would build it around that same altar in exactly that same place. On that specific hill that Gad, the angel of the Lord, had told David to go. Up this hill that was called Moriah. Now that too carries some significance for us. Maybe that name sounds familiar and you go, wait a minute, Moriah, that seems like I'm supposed to recognize it for some reason, but I don't exactly know why. And that's not surprising because as I was reading through it last week, all of this began to come together. David goes up this hill and he builds this altar. Solomon comes behind him on this hill called Moriah and he builds the temple around it. But generations before that, we read about Mount Moriah because there's another man of God. A man named Abraham who was told to take his son with him to Mount Moriah. And that when they got there, that they would make a sacrifice to the Lord. So Abraham did what he was told, and he went with Isaac, and they went to make a sacrifice. And when they got there, they built an altar that represented the presence of the Lord in this place. On Mount Moriah, the same mount that stood just outside the city, where one day David would build an altar, and one day Solomon would build a temple. 
So generations of people who recognize this overlap that we tend to miss, who recognize this ongoing story, generations of Israelites were waiting and watching for the promises that God had made, the promises that God had made to Abraham, the father of their people, the promises that God had made to David, their great king. As we've read through David's stories, we've seen some of his ups and downs, some of the terrible sins that he committed over and over and over again. But they were willing to overlook all of these shortcomings because in their mind, David was key to the great kingdom that they were becoming. David was their great king. David was building on the promises of God. So after David was gone, as David was removed from the story and we began to transition into other kings, the hope of the people began to dwindle. Because apparently the son of David that they had been promised wasn't Solomon. Although Solomon was incredibly wise, Solomon was not the one who would rule the great kingdom that was promised. And then the kings that began to come after Solomon were far worse than David was. They they committed far worse sins. They chose to disobey God over and over and over again. And as they did so, the kingdom and the people of God suffered immensely. Eventually, David's family was completely overthrown. The kingdom was decimated. The Israelite people were pushed into exile. They had to abandon their home. They had to leave as they began to be ruled by another people. They were no longer the great people that they thought they were going to become. They would no longer do the great things that they expected that God had called them to. Hope wasn't lost completely, but it was most definitely floundering as generation after generation after generation were further and further removed from Abraham and from David. All right, so first century, okay? Fast forward from David to first century. We're in the first century. And Matthew writes a story for these people who were waiting and were watching. And it begins like this. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. And the literal Greek right there says Jesus, the Messiah, son of David and son of Abraham. The first century Israelites are being ruled by the Roman people. They'd never known what it meant to be a great people. They'd never lived that way. They'd never seen that. In fact, these people had never even experienced what it meant to rule themselves. All they'd known from their own life and their parents' life and their grandparents' life and their great-grandparents' life was what it looked like to be ruled by other people. And not just other people, but cruel people. Cruel people who had no respect for their faith and no interest in the God of the Israelites. This is what they knew. This is what they experienced. This is what they had lived in. So they had no reason for hope. No reason for hope in their life. All of their expectation, all of their room for hope was dependent on the past. It was dependent on the promises that had been made to their ancestors. The promises that had been made to Abraham and to David and to others. So this little bit of hope that still existed in the Israelite people. This little bit of hope that was still there, that was still imaginable, that could still be viewed at all. Left of people who were waiting and watching. They were waiting for a son of Abraham. 
They were waiting for a son of David. And Matthew wanted to make sure they didn't miss it. Hope had arrived. Hope had come exactly the way that they expected it would come. It had come through Abraham. It had come through David. In the first century for all people, whether it was the Israelites or others, these these genealogies, these family trees mattered. These family histories were vital to explaining who a person was. For them, they told a story. They told a story of who they were and where they'd come from, of why their life mattered and where they were going. So as Matthew began his story, as he began with this long list of names, we're told 14 generations from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the exile and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. As he laid out this story, he told them why this mattered. He told a generation's old story with the mention of each family, the mention of each father, the mention of each generation, all the way to Jesus. And although you and I may overlook this piece, we come to the genealogy and go, oh, I can skip that part. Let's fast forward to verse 18 and read what's coming after that because that's the exciting stuff. The original hearers, the original readers of this story, there's absolutely no way they would have overlooked this because this carried for them significant weight. This list of names gave validity to the rest of Matthew's story. This list of names proved to them that Jesus mattered. So as modern day readers... Those of us who look at the story today, who struggle to understand what's going on here because we don't recognize the names, we don't know who these people are, we don't understand their connection to what's happening, we don't know how to pronounce their names, so we have all kinds of frustrations as we read through these. Matthew still has incredibly important things to say to us. And I think it starts with this. God's promises aren't dead. No matter what you've walked through, No matter what you've experienced, no matter what difficulty or what suffering you've seen in your own life, whether it's recent or it's from the past, if that difficulty, if that suffering has begun to crush the hope inside of you, whatever has happened that has caused you to lose any measure of hope, this list of names is written to remind us that God has great plans for you. God has amazing dreams for your life. Through all of this story, we get to the place that we see Jesus has come to rescue us. Jesus has come to make you whole once again. And through this long list of names, we're given the ability to recognize that through doubt and difficulty, through damage and devastation, Jesus can rise and bring victory. 
as Jesus' heritage is painted out, as his family tree is given to us, we see this long testimony where we find some that had great faith and some that had no faith at all and some that had struggling faith. And perhaps in your own family history, you could recognize the same. Men and women who were, were great ambassadors of faith, people deeply committed to following after Jesus and others who had no interest in faith whatsoever, no interest in, no interest in following after Jesus. And then what's likely for many of us, for most of us is that we see lots of people who were like David. They were kind of on again, off again, people of faith. All in one day, not real sure the next day. And if we're honest, perhaps that even feels like our own journey many days. And we find as we look back at Jesus' story that that was Jesus' story and yet through that came the Messiah. And while that might be our story, God is still working incredible things. God has come to bring us hope. God keeps his promises. As they begin to doubt and wonder The thread that is painted throughout this long list of names is the reminder that God keeps the promises that he made to Abraham, that he made to David, that he made that a son of Abraham, a son of David would come. This long lineage of people reminds us that God never abandons those he loves. God can bring restoration to the most difficult of circumstances. Whatever it is that you have lived through, whatever it is that you are living through, God can bring healing and hope. Now, Matthew's not finished. Matthew has more left for us to grasp, more left that he wants us as modern-day readers, both them also, but, but us even today as we look at this story. There's more that Matthew wants us to gather, to grasp, but we have to do some of that through noticing the oddities of this list of people. There's something incredibly beautiful about this list that Matthew put together In that Matthew chose to include in the long list of names that led to Jesus people who weren't very well thought of. As he created this list, as he wrote down these names, commentators will tell us there are some that are left out along the way. And yet, Matthew refused to gloss over some of the difficult parts of Jesus' heritage. Some of the difficult parts of Jesus' background. He chose to insert into the story hard memories that typically would have been overlooked as many would have painted the stories of their past. The stories of what they've walked through. The stories of the generations that had led up to them. I think Matthew was incredibly intentional about including these stories because Matthew wanted to communicate to them and to us that this new King Jesus had torn down many of the walls of the past. Jesus was welcoming in those who had never been welcome before. Matthew was making sure that we understood that in this new kingdom that Jesus would rule over, everyone was welcome to come and worship the king. This new kingdom was more inclusive than any Israelite had ever imagined possible before. This new king threw open the doors and said, come, 
follow me. It's shown most clearly as we read it through the women who are mentioned in this story. Four of them. Four women. Gentile women. Disrespected women. Women damaged by the men who were in their lives. Women who many would have thought of as unworthy of reverence or any type of respect. Mothers never mattered in family trees. Mothers were left out entirely. It was all about the men in the line. It was all about the fathers and who your father was and who you were connected to as your father. Mothers were completely overlooked. As a matter of fact, in the culture in general, women didn't matter much. They were overlooked. They were unimportant. They definitely were left out of important historical narratives. Nobody would have told the story of any great person and said, oh, and by the way, these were four of the mothers that were in his family line. They would have left them out altogether. All that mattered were the fathers that were in the legacy. And yet Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Mary were included in the family tree of Jesus. Son of David, Jesus, son of Abraham. These four women, they weren't part of the chosen people. But they were part of God's sending a Messiah. They didn't belong, and yet God had grafted them in. If you don't know their stories, you should. You should go today and read about these great women of faith. If you don't know about their suffering, you should. They matter immensely in our story of faith and in our story of Jesus. Matthew believed that these women were worthy of being named. Jesus believed that they were worthy of being loved. God believed that these women and so many others who are unnamed were worthy of being included. And Jesus continued and continues this mysterious, unthinkable inclusion of outcasts. In the first century, these 17 verses give us a truth about the kingdom of God, about the people of Jesus, about what it means to follow Jesus that we can never release, that we can never let go of. Somebody's child is on the loose. Um... They'll find them, surely. My guess is it's somebody with MCC. Um, Those of you that didn't see it, this door opened and then closed again. We are supposed to hold on to the truth that Jesus includes the outcast. Jesus welcomes the unlovable. Jesus welcomes the detestable. Even when perhaps he shouldn't. Even when we wouldn't. It's because of this promise, it's because of this truth that Jesus welcomes you and me. We don't belong. 
We don't fit in with what was expected. We don't deserve to be a part of the family of God, the children of Jesus. We don't deserve to be a part of the kingdom. But Jesus chose to include us. You and I have done more kingdom damage than kingdom building. From the very beginning, we have been incredibly poor partners of God. But for some reason, God loves us anyway. God chose us anyway. And he's invited us to become a people after God's own heart. But becoming so means that we can't get stuck in the story. Because this story was bigger than Abraham. This story was bigger than David. This story that God was writing is bigger than Chad. And the truth is, it's bigger than the birth of Jesus. It's even bigger than Jesus' life story. It's even bigger than Jesus' death and resurrection. The story of God, the story of the kingdom, the story of Jesus is so much bigger than this. Jesus came to continue the story that God is still writing on every single person and every single piece of creation. God is working to put things back together. God is trying to make all things new once again. And we're told in the scriptures that until the creation of a new heaven and a new earth, God will be hard at work. Piecing back everything the way it was supposed to be. And that God has invited us to join in this work. God has invited us to join in the work of recreation. And that work starts inside of us. It starts inside of us when we decide to love and to follow Jesus as friend, as Lord, as Savior. And in doing so, the Holy Spirit begins to work transformation inside of us, begins to change us. And we become a people who love God and love other people more fully. And it's only once we've chosen that and that transformation begins and that newness begins that we can become a people who welcome in the outcast, the unwanted, the unappreciated. That we then invite them to join the story of a baby born in a manger. To join the story of a king whose kingdom will never end. To join the story of God who is making all things new. It's in this welcoming others. And this faithful obedience of Jesus that comes out of a deep, loving relationship with Jesus. This transformation of the Holy Spirit that allows you and me to become women and men and a church after God's own heart. And for months, that's what we've been talking about. That's what we've been pursuing and asking about and questioning. David is a necessary piece of the story. The story continues to point us towards the birth of a Savior. 
and then beyond. So this Christmas, I invite you. Matthew invites you. God invites you to follow the King, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the baby born in a manger, the Savior, Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit do this incredible work of transformation inside your soul. Let Jesus make of you a brand new creation, which is what he desires and what he promised, if only you will allow it to happen. This Christmas, become partners with God in the incredible work of recreating paradise. Let us become men and women. Let us become a church after God's own heart. That is the calling of Christmas. That is the calling of Jesus. That is the calling of God. For each of us, for all of us. Pray with me, would you? Oh, Jesus, our Savior, thank you. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your birth. Thank you for your death. Thank you for the resurrection. Jesus, thank you for the work that you were doing long before that and the work that you are continuing to do long after that. And Jesus, we thank you for deciding to include us in it. Jesus, thank you. 